All right. Thank you, worship team. Awesome. Glad to have you guys up here. All right. Let's turn to Second Thessalonians. As you're turning there, I was grateful to hear uh, Steve's message um, after it was posted last Sunday. I'm glad to have met Steve and getting to know Steve, and uh, he's so willing to be able to come and preach now, so I'm so thankful for that. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that you would pour out grace upon grace to us, that certainly as some in this room have been born again by your grace and mercy, we grow by your grace and mercy. So we ask that you would bring those to us once again in this hour, through your word, through this instruction, through this revelation. Lord, we want to especially pray for Sarah right now. She's not feeling well. That you bless her, that you be with her, that you'd comfort her, that you would heal her. Lord, that you would do what only you can do. So we appeal to you on her behalf. And Lord, we're thankful for this letter that's been preserved for us, that it was written by Paul through the Spirit with not only them in mind but us as well. And so we are grateful. So give us good things from your word as you desire to, we know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we are uh, just further looking into something that we have had preached to us that we've heard for probably the past month or two now, starting with uh, Mr. Nathan Stanley from Oaxaca who came and shared with us this word, and then we've been digging into it the past couple of weeks as we begin Second Thessalonians, and we come to the end of chapter 1, which uh, brings us much instruction in the way of the priority of prayer. And we see revealed here the revelation or the look into Paul's heart for why he's praying for them and what he's praying for. This, this kind of plays off of something we see in 1 Thessalonians. Some of the language that Paul's using there about uh, the Thessalonians uh, walking in a manner worthy, being made worthy, it's all kind of brought to a head here as to why he's speaking that way. And I love in the Bible when we get these direct answers to these questions that we have, or these direct answers to how does, how does this work, or how does this exist, or how should we think about this. And 11 and 12 really bring this home to our minds. So we look at the priority in prayer when we ended 1 Thessalonians, we saw how uh, Paul needed prayer. 
We talked about that. And now we're seeing into Paul's prayer life for this people, which is really, really telling. And I've labeled this the priority in prayer because we're going to look at the main idea or the main goal of why we pray for one another. Not only one another, but for those across the globe. What are we, what are we asking for for them? Now, the Bible gives much example and much instruction by way of that. We see people praying for all sorts of things, for, for healing, as we just did, um, for open doors for the gospel. We certainly see that. We see a myriad of things that people are praying for. In fact, we're instructed, right, uh, in the Bible to pray about everything with prayer and supplication and give thanks to God. We even see examples uh, starting with our Lord about how you pray and what practically that looks like and the devotion given towards prayer. We'll look at that in a little bit too. But what's really telling, especially if you put yourself in this first century context with these people who are being persecuted by those who, who have the law, who have the prophets, who, who have this, this priestly lineage from David, the Jews, they are the ones bringing the trouble and the persecution on this Thessalonian church. And so they're in a very troubling context, not to mention just if you live in the first century, that's troubling enough. I mean, there's no uh, running water, really. There's, there's daily gathering of food. There's lots of trouble. There's nothing like we experience here today. There's really even no relief from the persecution that finds them, unless they're to leave their homeland, and then what? So you place yourself there, or in some of the current contexts that our brothers and sisters face across the globe. If you get the Voice of the Martyrs magazine, you get... You get uh, Examples of that every time you read. You know what people are going through. And how many, how many stories are left untold about what our brothers and sisters experience across the globe. And so if this is happening, if we are called to exist in a, in a world that is dark, in a world where Satan is roaming around, he's kind of free to do so under the sovereignty of God with a leash on, but... This, this troubling circumstances that we face and the troubling aspects of just life in general, the, what, what do we pray for? Are we just seeking that the troubles would escape people? That they wouldn't have to deal with those certain troubles? Sickness, loss of loved ones, loss of livelihood, health, all this sort of stuff. But what, what are we looking for? Well, as God's People, if we believe in what he has promised us, then we are looking forward to what everybody in Hebrews 11 looked forward to, that great hall of faith. All those people are looking forward to a city whose builder is God. They're understanding the fall from Genesis 3, that this world is broken. It's not enough. Sin exists here. Everything's decaying. Everything's dying. Except, the only institution ordinated and established by God to exist forever, the church. 
So not that we want each other to experience tough things and suffering, but there is a desire that finds itself as the priority in our prayer for one another. And that priority is that our lives would be lived in such a faithful, spirit-filled way that Jesus would be glorified in us and us in him at the end of time. Because if that happens, and it will happen, then that is the, the, the culmination of everything that, has been, that we've been working toward in faith, in perseverance, in suffering. That is the restoration of Eden. That is the new heavens and the new Jerusalem. That is the marriage supper of the Lamb, which starts an eternity of perfection in the glory of God. So if everything is working towards that end, then that's what we should pray for. And besides, we've talked about this a lot. How are you going to endure this world, which is sure to bring suffering, if you don't have hope in something better to come? This is a miserable existence then. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection didn't happen, if the promise of future glory isn't ours in Jesus who conquered the grave, uh, then we above all are to be pitied. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and it's all over. But Christians live in such a way that to the outside world it appears, why would you give up certain liberties? Why would you give up um, certain joys? Why would you give up certain pleasures? That's what the world lives for, to gratify the flesh. But as a, a believer in Jesus who's looking at verse 12, at the glory of Jesus to come and our glory in him to come, those things are minor, momentary, not even worth comparing to the glory that is to come, Paul says. So we live for that place and that time while we're here in this place and this time. And that will produce perseverance. So maybe we ought to get into talking about this. Verse 11. I'll just read 11 and 12 to you first. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll start here with verse 11. And the first phrase is there is he is um, speaking towards their suffering and what that's producing and what that's doing and what God is going to do um, in response to this, their suffering and who's, uh, whose hand they're suffering under, he is going to respond to that. They're supposed to hope in that. And so the end goal of prayer here is relief, justice, unity, and glory. They are, Paul is, and they are looking for and praying for when God will bring justice and bring relief. And when you read Revelation 5, 
and on, you see how that will unfold. And the book of Revelation spends about 16 chapters on this very thing. The prayers of the saints are constantly being offered up to the Lord, and they're presented to him as golden bowls full of incense, in which he is getting this pleasing aroma that is drawing him to his children who are crying out to him, and he will respond to that in complete and utter justice, do wickedness and evil, under which his people have been suffering, and he will bring them the ultimate relief and glory that he's promised as he answers those prayers. This is the whole biblical theology of the end goal of prayer. This is where it's headed. This is what it's all... Every time we pray for someone that's sick, every time we pray for someone that's lost a job, every time we pray for any ailment that befalls any of our brothers and sisters, we are praying for the ultimate relief that only comes at the day of the Lord. Because God can grant those momentary reliefs, and certainly he does, and he is to be praised and thanked for it. That is certainly why we pray now. But we also pray with that eternal perspective in mind that all of this will find all of its culmination and its final answer at the day of the Lord Jesus. Every prayer that we have ever prayed will receive that ultimate answer. We won't pray anymore in heaven. We will directly commune with God in praise and worship, having no need of anything anymore, being no longer encumbered by all of our ailments and mortality and all that sort of thing. We will be in complete unity with him as he has enacted his final justice and brought us into our final glory. That is it. That's where all prayer is leading to, and all that is getting stored up, and all of that aroma is wafting up into his nostrils, and all of that wrath that he is uh, storing up for all that wickedness that is being displayed to his children is going to be poured out, and you can read about that in Revelation as it unfolds. And we and they, the Thessalonians, are to take comfort in that end goal, that end reality. That's why Paul spends so much time on end times and the coming of Christ with them, because that's our ultimate hope. Therefore, that should be our ultimate consistent prayer. Ultimate and consistent focus. Until then, there's spiritual growth. And notice how Paul prays for this. Always. To this end, or to these ends, we always, always pray for you. It's amazing, right, how often we can decide that we don't need to pray. And you may not consciously say, I don't need to pray. But by the fact that we don't pray displays that we think that we don't need to pray. Paul never thought that. Part of our problem comes from thinking we have all of our issues solved or that we have all of our answers now. That's why almost every missionary I've talked to that has been working overseas has told me they don't want to be a minister or a pastor in a Western context. 
Because we think we have all we need. Why do we need Jesus? Why do we need to pray? Why do we need to gather together and worship? All of our needs are met. All of our desires are fulfilled. We don't need anything else. That's not Paul. In fact, Paul says that he learned the secret. Whether he has a little or whether he has a lot, he's learned the secret to being content. And you know what that secret is? That secret is his dependence on the Lord to do what only he can do because that's ultimately what he needs. Because if Jesus is to be glorified and if, if Paul is to be glorified in Jesus, then this is a God-sized work that requires daily dependence on him. Notice in Acts 6, verse 4, this is kind of when you see the, the, the prototype for deacons pop up and you have the apostles uh, being um, hounded with, with the needs, the actual needs of the people at the time in the church. They were trying to feed these widows. That was a need. They had to get it done, but they couldn't do it because of the great other priority need that was taking over their lives. And, and notice, so they, they bring <coughs> these men before them to meet the practical needs that had to be met. And this is, their, this is their goal. This is their role here. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Every time I read that, I think, <coughs> how much, I mean, I can understand a sermon takes a long time. But you're going to pray the other so many hours of the week? Do you really need that much prayer? Yeah. You do. You know, there's uh, Martin Luther used to say, you know, whenever he found himself facing just a, a daunting week, just the heavy task, all these needs were piling up uh, in ministry or, or in the academy or whatever, he, he found that that required more hours of prayer. It's not that, okay, I've got to get all my stuff together, get this organized, and I've got to write this, and I've got to do this, and I've got to visit this. No, it was that if, if that's all before him, he's going to go deeper into prayer. Because we're looking for God to do things that only he can do. We're not looking to our own strength. We've, we've already been presented through the gospel that we are helpless, weakless, sinful, dead, awful creatures apart from him. But in him, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Therefore, we must pray that he be with us, that that strength would be made known, that our proclivities to weakness and sin would be overcome by his strength and his spirit that abides with us so that the world would know and we would know life apart from our own flesh. And so it is absolutely necessary that the apostles and following their lead that our Pastors and spiritual overseers and shepherds must pray. The greatest failure that I'll admit to you in my ministry so far, I mean, there's a lot, but the greatest one is failure to pray. It's not that I don't pray. It's not that there's just, there's so many souls here. There's so many needs in your life and in your family. I'm not even talking about the practical ones. I'm talking about the spiritual ones. And then put on top of that the practical ones. 
and then put on top of that 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 we're gathering together to unify as sinners, which is just going to naturally bring this rub. The unity and diversity that, that is supposed to be experienced in the church is not natural to human beings. That's something that only God can do. Therefore, ask God to do it. Have to. Everything requires him. Now, notice what happens. And this is what Paul knows. Okay? Notice what happens in Acts 6 when they orient themselves to pray. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. They were depending on God to do what only he could do. They were making that very clear by how much they devoted themselves to crying out to him. And God was pleased through their abundant prayers to make his work known and his glory known. And so much thanks would go to him. And all of this fruit and all of this amazing, miraculous stuff is happening through that means of prayer. And the church is built up through prayer. People are made learners of Jesus, which is disciples, through prayer. Even he's adding to their number through prayer. Even priests, Jewish priests, are becoming obedient to the gospel. I know enough of human nature in my own heart and other people's hearts to know that I can't make that happen. I can't go find somebody in ISIS and just say, hey, you're going to be the next Paul for Christianity. I can't do that. But God can. Therefore what? Let's ask him. You all have people that you have shared with me constantly uh, that, that are just breaking your heart because of their sin, because of how they have left the Lord, because of how they <clears throat> disdain the Lord and the faith. And in order for them to come back, is not you going to get them and put them in handcuffs and drag them here every Sunday or whatever. It's going to require that they have a new heart. And I can't do heart surgery. And it's not even heart surgery. It's a whole heart replacement in the inmost being of the person. You can't go to school for that. You can't find the right tool for that. That's only God. Therefore, we ask him always. <clears throat> he prays to this end always that our God may make you worthy of his calling. He may make us worthy of his calling. Philippians 2, 12 through 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. God's working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you see those two things existing at the same time? We're supposed to be examining ourselves to see if we're in the faith. We're supposed to be uh, seeing how this salvation is going to bring us to that 
ultimate salvation, the redemption of our bodies from sin and death. But at the same time, it's God who's working in you. Therefore, we should have complete faith and confidence of what's going on here in our heart. And we should have complete faith and confidence that according to the will of God, which we've already read in 1 Thessalonians 4, He will sanctify us or make us holy or make us, as Paul's praying for, worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus to be glorified, to be His sons and daughters forever, to be His people. He makes us that. While at the same time, we have this mystery of responsibility under that, to seek that. If he has called you, and if he is making you worthy, that is what you will seek. If you're not born again, you won't seek that. You're living in your flesh, and those are the needs that you think need met. If you're living according to the Spirit, Romans 8 tells us, then you set your mind on the things of the Spirit. But what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the things you set your mind on. Romans 5, 1 through 6. This is good. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the gospel. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So, okay, that's the hope we talked about. The end goal of our prayers, the hope of that glory, obtaining that glory through Jesus, through which we've obtained access to the Father through. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So this is the context, the summary of, of really where the Thessalonians are at. They know the gospel, they've been brought in the gospel, they've been called, they've been chosen. Paul knows that at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians. And by the time we got here to the second letter, they're in the, they're in the pits of suffering. And, and the theology that Paul has in his heart and has in his mind, even though this letter was written before Romans, that this suffering is going to produce something for their eternal good. That's why he's praying the way he's praying. And he's not saying, Lord, just get them out of there. That's why he's praying the way he's praying, because he knows that that this suffering produces endurance in the life of the believer, and that produces character, and character produces hope. And if we have this eternal hope, which is personified in verse 12, then we won't be put to shame, but at the day of Jesus Christ, we will be revealed in glory with the rest of the sons and daughters of God. And everyone else will have to look at that and suffer the eternal pain of blaspheming the Spirit when the gospel was proclaimed to them and they wouldn't believe. You know those, uh, there's been lots of movies made, right, where you have like the ugly ducking, duckling 
um, whether it's a boy or a girl, and then through a series of events, like they take the glasses off, and it's like, whoa, they're really beautiful. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, right? And it, everybody's like, oh my gosh, I didn't know. And they're all of a sudden like, they're the it person of the school or whatever. I mean, multiply that by infinity. And imagine what the world is going to see when what Romans 8 talks about happens, when, when creation sees the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. Like, they know they're sons and daughters of God. You know how they know they're sons and daughters of God? Because they're with Jesus in glory, coming in in victory that he himself won. And the whole world has to acknowledge who those people are with him. So right now you're hated, you're persecuted, you suffer for his name, all that sort of stuff. But you are to be revealed in glory. And so suffering brings us there. God, one of, I, I know this for a fact, one of the reasons why he leaves us here, especially to suffer, is that we would right now display the, the glory of the hope that we have in what is to come. That you can transcend the experience of a fallen world by faith in Jesus. And what greater testimony is there than that? Think of Job. What is the whole purpose of the book of Job? Or that whole thing with Job and Satan. What is that? That is God putting on display that when he has entered into a covenant with somebody, it does not matter what they experience in this fallen world because his hope of glory and faith and how sure and awesome and faithful he is and their his care for his people will transcend those experiences. And so Satan is allowed to pretty much do anything to Job he wants except kill him. That would have been easier for Job, actually, to die and to be with the Lord. But God didn't allow that. He allowed everything but that because he was putting on display how powerful hope is beyond the schemes of the evil one. So what is there left to fear for God's people in this world? We, we are to grow in such a Christ-likeness that, that we, are, we can't be distracted from our faith by suffering. That's, that's a Pauline-type faith. Paul faith. Because as far as it appears in Scripture, Paul, although he's human, I'm sure he had his moments, but for the most part, his faith is undistracted by his suffering. And in fact, his suffering produces greater faith. And, and there is Satan being conquered by little old Paul. It's not by Paul himself. 
It's the spirit in him that is reminding him of the ways of the works and of the promises of God. And that will, every time in the life of a believer, conquer the suffering that seeks to separate us from his love. That's how you get that golden chain at the end of Romans that I talk about almost every time I preach now. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Why? Because faith and hope in him is stronger than anything else in this world. Suffering produces the means for perseverance. So Paul would like it to be removed from the Thessalonians, but there's a priority in prayer. And this is the priority. Their perseverance, their growth in faith. The goal is to be worthy of the calling. He's already called us. If he's called us, he's already justified us. Therefore, he's already promised glorification. But we are to be made worthy in the meantime. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Calling here in the Greek means summons. And tied to the gospel here, it's a, it's a kingly summons. And if the king calls you, you don't get to say no. He is summoning you into his court, into service. It's a big deal. Paul started his letters to them, asking them, charging them to walk in a manner worthy. God called you into his kingdom. You have to be his people. You're his loyal, loyal subjects. And that's not a burden, right? Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. That is a glory for us. And here in 2 Thessalonians, in verse 11, he is telling us that God makes you worthy of that calling. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed in the image of his son and those in order in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he also called and those he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified the faith and hope that makes suffering possible <clears throat> and even for our benefit is a faith and hope that understands what Romans 8:30 says in the past tense glorified what verse 12 here in 2 Thessalonians is speaking of. There is glory. Period. He called us. He makes us worthy. He works out that in us. We will walk in a manner worthy as he conforms us to the image of his son, which is his will. His people will be holy. If you have no desire for holiness... If you're not growing in holiness, you're not his. You're not born again. This is what his people will look like. 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has been granted to us, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. 
if we understand God, if we understand who brought us into this thing, if we understand who changed our very being from what it once was, then we will know what it is to be provided for in all of life and all of godliness in that life, even if that life is suffering. He says that he wants God in this prayer to fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Resolve is a desire. It's, it's a resolution, right, to do something. N- notice what he's asking for. Not only that he makes us worthy of the calling that he called us to, but that he fulfills our resolve for good. So even our own desires for good must be fulfilled by his power. Therefore, Paul prays. If, if I have desires that are born of God, every child of God does, and for those to even succeed, or to be fruitful, or to be glorifying to him, requires him, that he fulfills those things. Therefore, we ask him to do that. That's why we pray. And every work of faith by his power. Work of faith is trust in Jesus. It's it's trust in the gospel. It's deeds, works done because you believe faith the gospel. What are those things? Evangelism, prayer, Bible study, reconciliation, discipleship, killing sin, having a hope that perseveres. That is all to be done in the power of God. And the mistake that, that I make and that you make is by thinking that we're going to do this Christian life on our own. We're going to read our Bibles with a heart towards seeing Jesus on our own. We're going to desire to share with our family and neighbors the hope that we have in Jesus on our own. We're going to have the words for that. We're going to reconcile with people that did us wrong and don't deserve our grace. And forgiveness. Because we believe the gospel. And you, you think you're going to do that on your own? You're going to grow in Christ's likeness. You're going to learn more about Jesus just because you want to? You're going to kill sin? You're going you're to kill that pornography habit or that alcohol habit on your own? No. You know, it's funny, I heard a, I'd call him a secular philosopher, um, Jordan Peterson, talk about the only proven way that alcohol, alcoholics overcome their addiction, or, or drug addicts overcome their addiction, is, is through a, a, a religious, intimate relationship of some sort. Now, he wouldn't get specific with it, but I will. It, it's through the gospel. It's the power of God. Only he can kill sin. Only he can lead us in evangelism. Only he provides in our hearts to fulfill the desire that we have for prayer, for Bible study, for discipleship. He's the only reason. He's the only 
reminder that we have for hope that perseveres in the midst of trial and suffering. That's work of faith. And that's done through prayer. Verse 12, so that, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that Christ's glory is seen even now in the holiness of his people. Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 7, God's desire not only is that at the end of time, the world would see his glory in us and in him, but that even now, take Israel as his nation that he called out. This was his desire for them. Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 7. Keep them and do them. Talking about the statutes and commandments of God. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely, This great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? John 13, 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So you have that Old Testament call from God or reason for why these statutes and these commandments, why this set-apart people, and you have this word directly from Jesus himself about his command to love one another, his new commandment, right? Why? people? So people will know. Ephesians 3, 7 through 10, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the power, by the working of his power. To me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Not only is God glorifying himself in his church here on earth, God is glorifying himself and his church in the heavenlies. The spiritual realities that surround us that we cannot see, but will see, are understanding the glory of God through his church. This is a supernatural happening. The fact that this exists. That you have unity in the midst of diversity. And you don't have to have a difference of skin tone to have diversity. You have diversity from one being to another being. And he will not only unify all types of people, but all tribes of people, all nations of people, all tongues of people, and he will be glorified for it. He is to be glorified through his people. Period. That is what we will do. The boys, our boys know through their school and through their teaching at home the answer to the the first question in the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? 
The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. There's joy in him for us, in his glory. He's promised us all good things. And to not glorify him forever, to not be in that, is to be in the very opposite for all time. What would be the opposite of the joy of the Lord? It would be the wrath of the Lord, the anger of the Lord. That's what hell is, to exist in that forever. <clears throat> Jesus is also praying to this end himself. In John 17, 21 through 23, Jesus is praying to the Father that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus is using his final hours to pray to the Father that we would glorify Him by our intimate relationship, not only with Him, but with one another in Him. Jesus endured the shame of the cross for the glory that was before Him. Jesus suffered uncomparably under the wrath of God for something that was to come. Glory. And Paul says, he's praying this. I always pray this. So that Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him. And this is according to the grace, or even think about it this way, the good will of our God and the Lord Jesus. Basically, before I summarize chapter 1, I'll summarize verses 11 and 12. It is God's good will that all of our human experience serves to ultimately glorify Jesus in whom we will be glorified. He's made us co-heirs of what he is inheriting from the Father. Which, if you read Revelation 5, you see a little bit of him grab that inheritance. And by the end of Revelation, you see that inheritance enacted, enjoyed. That is eternal glory in a created place of perfection where God dwells in the midst of his people. And everything from Genesis to that point is leading to that. God is displaying the first fruits of that in the tabernacle, and then the temple. And he is, he is making that visibly known and shared with us in the person of Jesus. And then finally, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we will enjoy dwelling with God. In what? Glory. But Paul says in Romans 8, that only comes provided we suffer with him. So he's going to use this now. 
And the priority in prayer now is that our lives would be lived in fruitful faith that glorifies him in the midst of anything we experience now that is not worth comparing to then. So let me summarize this chapter. Faithful sufferers are growing in Jesus despite suffering. Guided by eternal hope of redemption and just judgment. Paul is praying that the Lord would fulfill their lives of faith and therefore is glorified. That's chapter 1. Paul's praying that the church, despite their suffering, would continue to grow in love because they're hoping in redemption of their bodies and the just judgment of their persecutors. And he's praying that because he wants the Lord to be glorified and us in him. There's an end goal. And if we're thinking too horizontally, we will miss it. But if we start to think vertically of what this is all for, even just a a day, an hour, what is that for? Ultimately, it's to be for the glory of Jesus and you in him. At which point there is no more suffering. And it all makes sense. So I pray you'd meditate on that and respond to the Lord as he's called you. And then we'll stand and worship together.